Good Thursday morning, everyone. Yesterday, uh, we closed off our class with some comments on the second chapter of Second Peter. We got down to the end of the second verse. And so the third verse this morning reads, And through covetousness, maybe we should read the second, And many shall follow their way, pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not or their condemnation slumbereth not. And so through covetousness with feigned words will they make merchandise of you. What is covetousness? Covetousness is an unhealthy desire for material gain. Not only is covetousness a desire for material gain, but it can also be for present power. We can envy people for things, and so we are covetousness, maybe for prestige, which is wrong. The so-called successors of Peter have followed the, the covetous practices here, he is telling us, to which he makes reference, and the wealth that has been lavished upon the so-called Peter's Cathedral, as Brother Rick has so eloquently described for us in our first classes this week, the cathedral in Rome is a case in point and is condemned by the apostles whose name has wrongly been applied to it. He is warning us against the people or teachers who would seek to mold us to their own will and to their evil practices and their wrong doctrines. And so we need to be on our guard against those who seek good opinion of their fellow of their fellows in time of controversy and who hesitate. Those who hesitate to clearly state the Spirit's teachings come what may. They serve religion because there is a material gain. They serve religion because it's possible to have personal prestige. They can see that it can be obtained thereby. And so they are desirous of this type of thing. They are spiritual Canaanites to be excluded from the temple of God in the age to come. That's who they will be or who they are. 
And we remember that the Lord drove out the, many cha the money changers in the temple 1900 years ago. They are the predecessors of those whom the apocalypse declares would trade in the bodies and the souls of men in Revelation 18 at the 13th verse. We can even liken them as the clergy of Rome who have valued the forgiveness of sin at a price. Or, the, or like the so-called Protestants who assess religion on a cash basis. We know if we ever hear of a minister or clergyman being called, it's always called to where there is the most money. To those who see the glory of splendid edifices or in a large affluent following. You know, Peter declares that Divine judgment thunders forth against such even now and today in which we are now living and does not necessarily await for the judgment seat. They shall gain their reward in this life. Past epochs of history demonstrate this, for we can see where Israel was overthrown through the lack of knowledge. The light stands of the early ecclesias were removed, were they not? because they did not hearken to what the Spirit saith to the ecclesias, or to the churches, as we read in Revelation. And thus Christ's warning message of judgment on the ecclesias of Asia, if they refused to repent, was, for, was fulfilled. But the judgment still awaits for those individuals who were, who were responsible for the conditions that then arose in those days. And so we come down to the fourth verse of this chapter. And between the fourth to the ninth verses, the apostle advances three notable cases of divine judgment of the past, all of which show how that God punishes evil men, but ultimately delivers the righteous. Peter's words compromise a warning to those who might be led astray by wrong teaching and then on the other hand, he encourages those who continue, who, who will continue, continue faithfully. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, 
of the ungodly. Who are the angels that sinned? The term angels, brethren and sisters, does not always relate to the Elohim. The term angel, angels does not exclusively relate to heavenly beings. The term angels often in scriptures refers to mortal man who has been set in authority in the ecclesias or appointed to a specific work. This word angel or angels is translated messenger in Matthew and Mark and Luke as well as in James. And so Peter here is, I think, drawing attention to a well-known incident of divine judgment in which God spared not those that he had placed in authority. This most likely relates to the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, as recorded for us in the 16th chapter of Numbers. Moved by personal pride, and these men moved by discontent with their lot, these men who had been set in high authority <coughs> affected other famous princes of the assembly, as we read there, which means in Hebrew, leaders of the ecclesia. Famous princes of the assembly means leaders of the ecclesia. And they accused Moses and Aaron of taking too much upon themselves. This we can see in verse 3 of that 16th chapter of Numbers. And God vindicates his chosen leader and his high priest, however, and he punishes the rebellious in a unique fashion. This we can see in verses 29 to 35 of that chapter. For there we are told that the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up the rebels and those that appertained unto them, and then it closed itself over them once again. This was a manifestation of divine judgment unto them. This was divine judgment that vindicated the divine authority. And yet in reading of these verses, we can see that there was a careful discrimination in punishment. 
For, those, for though the families of most of the rebels suffered with their fathers, the children of Korah did not. The children of Korah were saved. And they were saved to ultimately rise to prominence in the lines of Kohath and to occupy positions of importance in the service of even God himself. Thus, whereas the father was held in dishonor, the sons rose to fame. And evidently the fame of Korah refused to follow their father, or the family of Korah refused to follow their father in his rebellion. And Yahweh, who is both merciful and just, delivered them out of the judgment that involved the disobedience. This well-known incident in Israel's history, I think, points to the lesson that Peter is emphasizing. For Peter says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And this we take from the ninth verse. Peter's first example, therefore, shows some of the pernicious effects that can and do stem from fleshly pride and from fleshly ambitions while it also shows that God is merciful in his judgments. And so I think this morning we should all take a lesson from what we have just been studying and watch over our fleshly pride. and to a self-examination regarding it, and a self-examination towards our fleshly ambitions. For there's none here this morning who do not have some. We are all guilty. there in the fifth, fifth verse, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Speaking of Noah, his, his faithfulness contrasted with the lack of faith of the sons of God 
contemporary with him at the time of his building the ark is worthy of our note. And his salvation, the principle, is established that by the judge of the earth that he will do right. And speaking of the eighth person, we know in the study of the scriptures that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. And Noah here is styled the eighth. Well, in fact, he was not the eighth generation from Adam. <coughs> Noah was the tenth generation from Adam. Why then is he styled here as the eighth? Looking up in the revised version, I find that it says, Noah with seven others, which is, expresses a fact, but it does not express what Peter has written. It is claimed, however, that the idiom of classical Greek sometimes requires that such an expression be so rendered. But did Peter write in classical Greek? It's been suggested otherwise that he did not write in classical Greek. Now there is a way, I think, of understanding this passage as it stands in its literal form. And that is... By discerning the spiritual significance of this number, the number eight. As five stands for grace, and seven stands for completion, so eight, the figure eight, stands for spirituality. Now we know that circumcision took place on the eighth day and we know that circumcision was the token of the Abrahamic covenant. This we can see in the 17th chapter of Genesis. And it spake of the denial or of the cutting off of the flesh. Why? So that God might be honored. And in that sense, Noah was truly an eighth person. For his family alone repudiated the flesh at that time of history to serve God. His preaching brought plainly home to the people what was required of them. It also brought home 
What would happen if they refused the message of God? And because the world rejected this message, it was politically, socially, and ecclesiastically circumcised. It was cut off. Noah and his family, we know, were saved. Why? Because they were circumcised in heart. This you can find in Romans chapter 2 at the 28th and 29th verses. Also in Colossians 2 and 11 tells us the same thing. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 at the seventh verse declares to us that Noah saved his house, condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He was thus like Abraham, who believed God and it, his belief, was counted unto him for righteousness. Noah's justification, or Noah's righteousness, was by faith. <coughs> what, he had, what God had promised Noah... He had faith that he would perform. And it was this method of salvation that he preached to the people in those days. And particularly to his fellow sons of God, as is recorded there in scriptures. Whose eyes had been blinded to realities through their mad pursuit of that material well-being that we spoke earlier about. The material well-being. Noah preached, but few heeded his message. And fewer still applied the principles, the principles that he stressed. So finally, the flood of which he warned would come, swept to destruction a complete and entirely unheeding world. Yet many of those who were destroyed, those many who were destroyed possessed the very same privilege standing in the sight of God as did Noah. <coughs> Possibly millions, brethren and sisters, millions of people 
millions of the sons of God. perished in that flood. This is a grim warning for us today. How many were saved? Out of how many? What a small fraction. And verse 6 says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an over, overthrowing, or making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. These cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were noted for gross immorality. And such an utterly depraved way of life has broke every law of restraint that God had commanded. And in the breaking of this law, what did it lead to? It led to the most vile sexual extremes and perversions. The same thing that are things that are becoming more and more characteristic of these times that you and I are now living in. We, brethren and sisters, are living in the land of permissiveness. So that even the sin to which Sodom has given its name is now becoming more and more a matter of common practice And even worse than the, prom or the, the practice is that it is being condoned and it is being accepted. In many parts of the world, if not in the entire world. And not only that. It is being accepted by some religious groups. Do you know that in Canada, the United Church of Canada have condoned ministers who are homosexuals? Not only are they letting them into the, their respective uh, churches, but they're making them ministers. Brethren and sisters, I have also heard 
that there are self-confessed homosexuals in Christadelphian circles. I am not saying that this is a fact, but I've heard it, that it has happened and exists among us today. And so today on a scale never known to history, with greed, brutality, beastliness, and criminal instincts in the ascendancy, the history of Sodom is being repeated. And if this continues, and it will, the world is headed toward a terrible crisis. Sodom's sins were not merely immorality, but also their attitude towards it. For immorality was openly practiced in the city without any shame and without any attempt to hide it. The people openly supported the wicked in opposition to the righteous. Does that not sound like today? Ezekiel 16.49 tells us that the sin of Sodom was basically fleshly pride induced by fullness of bread and abundance of idleness. This is all typical of our modern conditions and should constitute, I believe, a very grave warning to all of us who are trying to live godly lives in an evil environment. It is hard. And those of us who are doing this can take comfort from the words of Peter when he said, The Lord knoweth, which is very similar to our exhortation on Monday evening. Thou, God, seest me.
do we realize that the destruction of Sodom is referred to about 20 different times in Scripture in this way, indicating the significance of this example? We mentioned that if we accept the angel that sinned, if we accept that the angels that sinned are, in fact, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, then Peter here is showing the development of iniquity. Pride and ambition dominated the companions of Korah in their opposition to Moses. And they opposed their God-appointed leader rather than God's open word. The Antediluvians, however, had descended a step further, for they were impatient of the divine revelation itself. And the third example that is there for us to read this morning draws attention to a people completely completely hardened to sin. Whose blindness of heart to God and God's ways found expression in their most vile conduct. And so Peter's examples here in sequence Therefore, illustrate that fleshly pride and fleshly ambition can lead to rejection of God's word, which in turn will result in moral depravity. And so the moral decline in the case of the examples thus cited, together with the judgment that was poured out upon them, constitutes therefore a warning. It constitutes a warning to those whom Peter predicted would turn from the truth. I'm going to have to skip over. We're not going to cover nearly as much as I wanted to in this class. But Let us look at that phrase in the ninth verse where it says that the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Well, here the salvation granted the children of Korah Faithful Noah and righteous Lot exhibit the principles that God is both just and he is merciful. They exemplify this. And Peter has very carefully selected his examples here. And there is surely in this, I believe, an exhortation to 
to avoid the evil environments which the world offers, recognizing that though we may be able to resist it, those who are dependent upon you and me, even though we can resist it, those who are dependent upon us for guidance, for direction, and for example, they may not be able to do so. Let us remember this. The word temptations means to test and to tempt. It's used in both ways in Scripture. And the context here suggests that both ways are meant. The Lord can deliver the godly out of both trials. And the Lord can deliver the godly from temptations as well if they draw from him that strength that is available. And there's no one to whom this strength is not available. <coughs> and Jesus taught, we remember, his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, and to deliver us from evil. And in so doing, in teaching them these words, he taught them to recognize how frail, how frail is the flesh. How easily the flesh succumbs to evil. And also how dependent it is, or how dependent we are, upon the help of God, if one is to reveal those qualities in which God finds pleasure. And Peter in the 10th verse says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lusts of uncleanliness and despise government, presumptions, or presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. The message that Peter is trying to put across here is Peter is writing of punishment that is to be meted out on the day of judgment. And he now shows that there will be graduations of such punishment. Where wrong doctrine has been followed by wrong living, 
the greater the punishment will be experienced. For we read in Luke 12, 47 and 48 these words. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did he do his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whom much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. We know we read in Jude quite often in the 16th verse there that those that walk after the flesh, it says there that these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts and their own, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration. Why? Because of the advantage that may, they may attain unto. And so we see that they who walk after the flesh will reap that alone the flesh can provide. That is corruption. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 reads, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth of the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap, we pray, everlasting life. Thank you.